book of Matthew, chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verse 18, and then at the end of verse 25, we'll turn to Matthew chapter 28. My goal with the message this morning is really an introduction to what we need to do. In many cases, introductions are not that exciting. And normally I do very little introducing, just go right into the book. But the things that I'm sharing with you this morning are foundational for you to understand how I'm approaching not only the book of Matthew, but also the commission of Christ. And so we're going to take time and do that here this morning. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretively. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, Son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. Here's the reason for his name, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep, and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. Matthew chapter 28. And we're going to begin reading in verse 16. Very familiar passages to many of us. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to a mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, or behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. As I mentioned before, we're really going to begin officially the series through the book of Matthew in several weeks. But I wanted to begin with what is commonly known of as the Great Commission. Now, I may slip up and use the words Great Commission, 
but I think it, we would do better to call it Christ's commission or the commission of Christ. And the reason why I say that is because this commission is not new. Nor is it the ultimate commandment. What we have here is a commission that has been hinted to in the Old Testament. And we saw that in our scripture reading, right? Through the prophet Isaiah, he calls forth to the islands. In other words, he's calling forth to the Gentile nations, the other nations other than the nation of Israel. It has been foreknown all throughout the Old Testament, even in the Abrahamic covenant, that in Abraham, all peoples, not just Israel, but all peoples will be blessed. Not only is this commission hinted to in the Old Testament, but even during Christ's own earthly ministry, he gave hints concerning the inclusion of the Gentiles. Outside of this book, the book of John, he says, Other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them I must bring, and there will be one fold and one shepherd. Those other sheep are Gentile peoples, us. So the outreach to Gentile nations is not an afterthought, but it has been always in the mind of God, even from the beginning of that Abrahamic covenant, and known in the Davidic covenant, and certainly being seen in its fullness in what we know of as the new covenant. Not only should, am I arguing for that we should just call it the commission of Christ, but that commission had also been given in various forms all throughout the 40 days in which Christ appeared to those men and to that early church. We have many different instances of the commission. In fact, it has been said that this commission is given in every, all four books of the gospel. It's given in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. And it is seen being fulfilled all throughout the book of Acts. So what we have here is not something that is new, nor do I think that this Commission is the preeminent command of Christ. I do think that this commission does summarize the Lord's instruction to his apostles and their delegation to the churches. But really the commission is the means by which the mystery of his will as given to us in Ephesians chapter 1, is being accomplished on the face of this earth. And of course, being Americans, we're always fascinated with the means, not so much the reason behind the means. In fact, we can attempt to do the means and forget the reason. So I think that what we have going on here isn't so much a great commission in the sense that it's new, nor a great commission in that it is preeminent 
But in fact, what you'll notice in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 20 is that Matthew has made clear that this commission is not the preeminent commandment because he says, verse 20, teaching them to observe what? All that I have commanded. Everybody see that? So even inherent within the commission of Christ is this command, this exhortation, this participle that carries the force of a command, this teaching them, them is disciples, to observe all that I have commanded you. And of course, the all there in Matthew's book of the gospel is all that he has written. The first 28 chapters. And of course we know as the New Testament became in formation, it would also be extended to the other books of the gospel, right? And then that would be extended also into the book of Acts. And then it would be extended all throughout the epistles of Paul because all of that is forming all that Christ has commanded. Those are inspired. And then it would end with John himself giving to us the final book of the New Testament, and that is what book? The book of Revelation. That, too, is part of the instruction. But I do think that it is important that we remember that our approach to this book will be what is Matthew doing here within the book? So I don't think that this is new nor preeminent as in the Great Commission, but it is the means by which the mystery of His will is being fulfilled in every generation. And of course you can go back and go through our series in Ephesians chapter 1 on what the mystery of that will is. And the Lord very tenderly reminds us in Matthew 28 and verse 20 that those bodies of people who are attempting to do this commission, that the Lord is with them. We are not left alone in doing the means by which the mystery of His will is being accomplished. Christ is with the body of people who are giving themselves to these means because they are seeking to see the mystery of His will being accomplished on the face of the earth in which they live. To me, that is exciting. And as we go through here, we'll see some nuances, I think, to this commission that I think will give greater clarity and understanding to the means by which Christ has given this to us. Now, of course, I think the danger of our approaching this commission is that in general, we have heard a lot of preaching on this commission. How many of you have heard preaching on Matthew 28 verses 16 through 20 or 17 through 20. Okay? That's pretty much the majority of us. 
And what that means is, is that we need to glean from these passages and hear these passages with the ears of the early church. And really try not to pour into it things that we might have heard or applications thereof of which we might have heard, but really to hear it with refreshing ears. To some of us, it may be new to our ears, but to hear it and to receive it and to look at this commission, and I think this is very critical, in light of this book of Matthew. It is Matthew giving this to us, is he not? And he has not left us without an understanding of what he means by this commission here within the book of Matthew. So for many of us, it will be bringing to our remembrance things that we have already come to know and believe to be true. And for many of us, I think, prayerfully, there will be some nuances that will give more light and more clarity to what this commission is instructing the bodies of Christ to do. So I want to look at two things. One, I want to look at the writing of this book, the book of Matthew. And then I want to look at the timing of this commission and to whom it's given. Now, we will not have time to go through the timing of the commission and to whom it is given this morning. Lord willing, we'll take that up next week. But I do want to look at the writing of the book of Matthew and the writing of this commission. I do think that it is helpful for us to understand this fact. That Matthew is given first place in the New Testament. Because among the four books of the Gospel, it is considered the earliest written Gospel. The earliest written gospel. Now, there's other reasons why we might put this book first. First of all, that Matthew presents Christ as the Son of God in the capacity of His being the King. He is the Messiah King that was promised. But it is the earliest written gospel. One of the early church fathers said, and I'm quoting, and this might surprise you, Matthew composed the logia, that is the writing, in the Hebrew tongue. And each one interpreted them as he was able. He's using the word interpretation as in translating. So if what this early church father said is true... The book of Matthew was originally written in what language? Hebrew, Aramaic. I'm going to use those two together, although technically there is a nuance between those two languages. 
we don't have a Hebrew New Testament. We don't have a Hebrew writing of Matthew. Our copies of the book of Matthew is in what language? Greek. And of course you have heard that our New Testament was written in the Greek language. But here's an early church father stating to us that this was the earliest written gospel and that Matthew composed this earliest written gospel in the Hebrew tongue or in the Aramaic tongue. Irenaeus, and he was an early church father, and the importance of this man is that he was a disciple of Polycarp. And the importance of that is, is that Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John. So that's how early we're getting to those original 12 apostles. He said, Matthew also issued a written gospel among the Hebrews in their own dialect. So here we have, if it's true, I have no Bible for this, but if it's true, reading the earliest sources that we have, then the original writing of the book of Matthew was in Hebrew Aramaic tongue. And it also lets us know that Matthew conducted his ministry among what people? The Jews, Israel. Now this is important because you might say to yourself, well, if Matthew was originally written in Hebrew or Aramaic, and we don't have any copies of that as of today, and what we have is Matthew in what tongue? Greek. Then how can we be assured that what we have here is the inspired Word of God. And of course, that is a debate that is far above our pay grade. <laughs> but I do think that it is easily reconciled with this fact that I've not brought up. Matthew, according to the early church fathers, preached for 15 years in the land of Israel. Now the early church father didn't say the land of Israel. He actually uses the word Palestine. And just to help you understand, if you ever go to Israel as a tourist, you do not call the land Palestine. That is extremely offensive to that Jewish nation because God gave them that land. But here he uses that word. But an early church father said that Matthew ministered for about 15 years to the nation of Israel. And after 15 years, he went to the Gentile nations. Now, I think that's fascinating 
You say, why do you think that's fascinating? Well, what does the commission say? Matthew wrote the commission, go and disciple all nations. Right? So here's Matthew. He's got this commission. He writes the commission. Tradition says that he ministered for 15 years and then turned his eyes into the Gentile nations. And folks, what that tends to intimidate is this. Evidently, Matthew did write the original writing in Hebrew Aramaic. Why so? Who's he ministering to? The Jews. But then when he turned his eyes to the Gentile nations, he would have written a Greek language of that written gospel. Why would he do that? Because he's trying to reach who? Gentile people. And he wants to leave them something behind of the teaching and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now you may say to me, well, how in the world could he do that? Well, what was Matthew's occupation? He was a tax collector. And folks, if he was a tax collector, then it would have been of necessity that he know both Hebrew and Greek. You say, why is that? Well, who's he collecting taxes from? The Jews. Who's he giving the taxes to? The Romans or the Gentiles, right? So here's a man who, as a tax collector, of necessity of his vocation, would have been, I'm just going to use the word fluent, in both the Hebrew tongue and also the Greek tongue. So it makes sense, if the tradition is true, that if Matthew's ministering among the Hebrew people and he wanted to leave something there, he could have written an inspired... Hebrew book of Matthew. And then when he turned his eyes to the Gentile nations and he began to minister among those Gentile nations, well, would you want to leave them a Hebrew copy? They don't even know Hebrew. You say, well, get over it. Learn Hebrew. Well, that's not the way the Bible God works. He wants to leave them a record in their own what? In their own language. And it is entirely feasible that Matthew then, being an apostle, could have taken up his pen again and wrote an inspired, God-breathed copy of the book of Matthew, not only in Hebrew, but also in, in Greek. And it is the Greek written copy that we have extent that we know is inspired of God, God breathed, and we can be confident 
that what we have is the Word of God. Another amazing thing about the book of Matthew is that Matthew quotes and alludes to the Old Testament more than Mark or Luke or John. Now again, that does make sense, does it not? Because who's he originally ministering to? The The Jews. So he's actually going in Old Testament passages, alluding to Old Testament passages, and proving and showing that this Christ, whose name is Jesus, truly is the promised Messiah. Not only does he quote or allude to the Old Testament more than Mark, Luke, or John, he also uses both the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew text, and the Hebrew text in his quotations. And that's another proof that he would know fluently both what? Both languages. He's actually using both of them here in his writing. So what we have here is a book. It is the earliest known written book of the Gospel. And because of that, it was the most widely read written gospel. Now, as the other New Testament books of the gospel were written, then they too would have joined in that reading. But if this was the earliest, then it would be the most widely read, certainly among the Jews, right? but also among the Gentile people that he ministered to. So what we have here in the book of Matthew, if the tradition's correct, if our understanding on how we can have it in Hebrew, we don't have any of that extent writing, but we have it also in Greek, if we understand all that and put all that together in what I would call sanctified conjecture, then the book of Matthew is the earliest definitive writing of an apostle. Now that's going to really impact our understanding of the commission. The earliest definitive writing of the gospel. And as I mentioned to you, Matthew ministered for 15 years and then he went to foreign nations. Tradition says that he actually went to the Ethiopians. So if you've got a map in your mind, that would be south. And he went and ministered to the Macedonians, to the Syrians, to the Persians, to the Medes. All of those Gentiles. Areas are mentioned that Matthew had an impact in. That, that's a large geographical area, isn't it? And what he would have left there would have been a written, inspired copy of this book of Matthew. Truly, we can say that Matthew, by the providence of God, went to the Jew first and also to the 
to the Greek. Matthew's not only giving us the commission, he's actually doing the means of that commission to carry the gospel around the world. Now, if it is the earliest writing of the gospel, we think, there are people that differ, but the general consensus is we think that this book was written just prior or around 50 A.D. So when do we say that Christ was crucified and resurrected? We think somewhere around 33 A.D. And so what we have here is this writing. Now, what we do know, some people conjecture, well, if Christ died 30 to 33 A.D. and Matthew ministered for 15 years, then that would have put the Hebrew written, uh, inspired copy of this book around 45. But Matthew lets us know that there was a little interval between Christ's resurrection and the writing of this book. And I want to show you those two things. Go back to Matthew chapter 27. And we'll notice a little phrase here in this chapter. Verse 7. And they conferred together, and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood. And how does it finish? To this day. Everybody see that? To this day. That would have been the day whenever he penned this inspired book. If you look over in Matthew 28... And if you go up to verse 15, we have the rumor that the Roman soldiers came and said that the apostles had stolen the body while they were asleep. Verse 15, and they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews as it is to what? To this day. Okay. So we don't know what the interval was, but there was an interval there. So you perhaps could say 45 to 50 A.D. for the Aramaic Hebrew um, written book of Matthew and probably 50-ish A.D. for the Greek writing of the book of Matthew. And folks, all of that that I've just communicated to us makes this book a little unique, doesn't it? It's the earliest. It's not only the earliest, but it would have been the most widely read. It was given behind, left behind, the ministry of an apostle to the nation of Israel, to the Jews. And it was also left behind as he ministered to the Gentile nations. So he would have ministered in Ethiopia. And then when he left that geographical area for another place, he would have left behind a copy of his inspired writing. What? The book of Matthew. Because at that time, in the 50s, and 
60s, the New Testament was still being brought together and compiled and recognized as a complete canon of the New Testament. In fact, the book of Revelation wasn't written until when? 90s, early 90s. And so here we have this understanding. So since it's the earliest book, since it's the most widely read book, then that has implications for us if we approach the book as if we were in the early church. If we were in the early church, we wouldn't have Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Yes? We wouldn't have the epistles to Timothy, Titus. We wouldn't have Jude. We wouldn't have the book of Revelation. Those things are either in process or yet to what? Yet to come. So if you're reading this book, and this was the only book that you had in the New Testament, would that impact any how you read the commission? And the answer to that is yes. (coughs) But it doesn't mean that whatever impact that it has on the commission would contradict anything that came after it. Everybody following me? But it would help us and give us some additional clarity about what Matthew means when he says, go therefore, teach all nations, disciple all nations, baptizing, etc. It would let us know something about that. Now this book is written around another unusual thing. It is written around five extended teaching discourses of Christ. In between those discourses are narrative. But here in this book, we have five discourses. And of course, you know the first one, don't you? What's the first one? Sermon on the... How many chapters? Chapter 5, 6, 7. You got it. Okay, That's a long discourse, isn't it? We have other discourses. We have the instruction that Jesus gave to the disciples when they were to go out and evangelize. That's a whole chapter. We have instruction that's repeated in other books of the gospel, but we have the instruction of the parables of the kingdom. That's a whole chapter. We also have how to conduct church. I use that in quotes because the church had not yet been manifested, but Jesus does mention church in this discourse. We have how to have proper relationships within the church in this book, and that comprises one whole chapter. And then we have the fifth one, and the fifth instruction deals with the second coming 
of Jesus Christ. So what you see here is a progression, do you not? You've got the Sermon on the Mount. That happened at the beginning. You've got evangelism instruction. You've got the parables of the kingdom of heaven or of God. You've got how to have proper relationships within the body of Christ. And then you have His coming, His second coming, all given within this book. And here's something fascinating. The primary hearers or audience of these five discourses were the disciples. Now why do you think that's important? Folks, what does the commission say? Make disciples of all nations. So what we have here in this book is what it would look like to be made a disciple. Remember, this is all the book you got. Remember, just throw out, don't do this, but throw out all the other books of the, of the New Testament. All you have is a copy of what book? Of Matthew. And what we have here is five discourses, ultimately and primarily given as instruction to the disciples. And then Matthew writes, here's what Christ said. Go make disciples. So we would know what a disciple looks like when we know and understand those five discourses. They would have some learning, following, understanding of the Sermon on the Mount. They would have some learning, following, understanding of the instruction on evangelizing. They would have an understanding of the parables of the kingdom and what that means. They certainly would have an understanding on how to conduct church body relationships. And you remember what he did there. He went and took a child. He told them that we're not to lord over one another like the Gentile nations. But the greatest among you would be would be a servant. We have the second coming and the understanding of that. All five of those things, in a nutshell, are what are needful and necessary to become a disciple. They're not all necessary to be regenerated, but to show yourself a disciple, you would definitely give ear to those five discourses and have full intention to what? To obey them, because if you read Matthew, look at Matthew 28, verse 20, Christ said, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And remember, the only book you have at this point is what book? Matthew. And what Christ commanded them was in those five discourses that Jesus had given to them. So I want us to turn to them. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 5. And I made mention to you that prim the primary audience 
were the disciples. Although other people listened to it. So could a person get saved by listening to this instruction primarily given to the disciples? The answer, of course, to that is what? Yes. What we have here in Matthew 5, verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, He went up on the mountain, and after He sat down, His disciples came to Him. Everybody see that? He opened His mouth and began to teach who? Them. Now were there crowds there? Would they have heard it? Yes. But He's giving this teaching primarily and ultimately to the disciples. And if you go to the end of this message, what is fascinating is that this message and all five discourses are the conclusion of a geographical area of ministry that he had. Look in chapter 8. He's conducting this ministry on the mount, and then it says, eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 1, when Jesus came down from the what? So here he leaves the mountain, he leaves one geographical location, gives the Sermon on the Mount, and then he goes to another. Everybody see that? Turn to Matthew chapter 10, just a couple of chapters over. In between's narrative, and that narrative is intended to ever increasingly convince you that Jesus has all authority. So in between the Sermon on the Mount and this, you have him casting out demons. He's showing forth his authority. Matthew chapter 10. Jesus summoned who? His 12 disciples and gave them authority. Then he names them. Verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them. So again, we had the primary instruction being who? The disciples. Then you have chapter 11, verse 1. He's going to leave that area. When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his twelve disciples, he departed from there. Now we go to the parables of the kingdom. We go from end of chapter 10 to chapter 13. Chapter 13, it says, That day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. And large crowds gathered to him. So he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to who? To them. Now the them here are the crowds. But you understand the crowds did not understand what he was saying. So in verse 10 what happens? The disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak in parables? And Jesus gave them instruction. Then in verse 17, he says, I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you say, see and did not see them and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And then he instructs the disciples, hear then the parable of the sower. He gives them instruction. 
<clears throat> and that's why I say the ultimate audience of the instruction is the disciples. Go over to, uh, if you look at the end of Matthew chapter 13, you'll see again that he departs. Verse 36. <clears throat> then he left the crowds <clears throat> and went into the house. So he left the geographical location of being on the boat. He goes right back into the house and then he begins his ministry there. Look in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18 and verse 1. <clears throat> At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom? And he answers that. Then he goes on and gives further instruction to them concerning relationships within the body of Christ. Like verse 15, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault how? In private. Who's he going to? Is he going to his lost neighbor? No, he's going to his brother, a fellow believer in Jesus Christ. And of course, in Matthew 19, he leaves. When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond Jordan. And then we have the fifth discourse, Matthew chapter 24. <clears throat> Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when His disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to Him. And He said to them, so He gives that instruction. Then in verse 3 of Matthew 24, He's sitting on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to Him privately saying, Tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age Jesus answered and said to who? To them. So again, the primary audience is the disciples. And of course, you know, we have two chapters concerning this. And in Matthew chapter 26, when Jesus had finished all these words, He said to His disciples, you know in two days, this is what's going to happen. And of course, He does leave, doesn't He? He goes to the cross, He's buried in the tomb. Three days later, He's raised from the dead. And so folks, when you consider all that and you really allow it to be preeminent in your mind, what would it be like to be there in that early church? We have no written things. Everything is oral, right? Of course, they hear things on the day of Pentecost and they hear other things. Here's this ministry of this man. And he's compelled by the Spirit of God. He's ministering among the Jews. He's compelled by the Spirit of God. And he may have even been thinking, I'm fixing to leave. And I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And so he writes a written book of Matthew in their own tongue. To leave it behind. For the churches there among the Jews. Then he goes to the Gentile nations, and of course he ministered in different geographical areas, and you would want to leave something there, would you not? And so he leaves an inspired, not Aramaic Hebrew, he leaves an inspired Greek book of Matthew with them, and he begins to spread that around, and of course the churches begin to what? They begin to copy it. 
Okay, and then other books of the gospel come into play. So when you look at the commission, and you understand that the narratives are given to firmly increase your conviction that Jesus has all authority. And then when you get to Matthew 28 and verse 18, He explicitly states, all authority has been given to me in two geographical areas, heaven and, and earth. You're saying, absolutely. <laughs> okay. I've been convinced by this all the way through with all this narrative. And then you hear Christ say, I have all authority, so therefore, since I have all authority, and you're persuaded of this, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing, teaching, all that I've commanded, I'm with you always. If all you had was the book of Matthew, you would understand that the teaching that he's referring to is the five discourses here in this book. And that would have been the grounding at that point, at that early point, of what the churches were teaching to the professed disciples of Christ there in that early church. So folks, to me, when you begin to understand that type of format and that type of understanding, it does bring to our remembrance all the good, sound, profitable teaching that we've heard about this commission. But it adds some additional light to what the Lord through Matthew meant when He said the commandment, make disciples among all the what? All the nations baptizing and teaching them all things that I have observed. And as I mentioned before, and I want to mention it again, <clears throat> rightly understood, nothing that Matthew is giving to us is contradicting anything else in your New Testament. But it does help us that when we hear teaching to observe all that I've commanded you, that we know, all right, first of all, it means these five discourses. And it is then extended, is it not, to Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, etc., etc., all the way through the book of Revelation, because all those books are God-breathed. And God doesn't contradict Himself. But it does help us to give some clarity and some meat behind what this commission is referring to. And folks, what we have here is Matthew actually exercising this commission. Did Matthew go? Did he seek disciples? Did he teach? I'm sure he taught more. 
But did he teach the things that he wrote down in the book of Matthew? Did he baptize them? In other words, he formed local geographical New Testament what? Churches for the glory of God. How Matthew exercised his ministry, the content of Matthew's teaching, and how this born-again disciple who was put into the office of an apostle, and there are no apostles since these apostles, how he outworked Christ's commission to the Jews and Gentiles is instructive. Because what he did was he planted local geographical churches. Why would he do that? Because when we look at the, at the commission, only, only a church can fulfill this commission. No individual person can fulfill the commission all by themselves. In other words, we're not fulfilling the commission just because we lead someone to Christ or just because they make a profession of faith. All people who profess Christ should follow the Lord in being what? Witnesses and baptized. Where are you baptized? In a local New Testament assembly of disciples. Where are you going to hear all that Jesus commanded us to observe? Well, of course you can take your Bible home. They couldn't. But you could take your Bible home and you could what? You could read it. But the place, the New Testament brings this out, the place where Christ is among Revelations chapters 1 through 3. He is among the candlesticks. He is in the midst of the churches of Jesus Christ. And that's why when you read in your New Testament, there are some individual epistles, but when Paul's writing, he's writing to a church. He's not just writing to a pastor. He's writing to the whole body of believers at the church at Ephesus, at the church at Philippi. Because churches commission messengers, we call them missionaries, so that the messengers can start Churches. In other words, folks, churches begat churches. And the church body is what it's all about. The body of Christ, which is the church, Ephesians tells us with this. So folks, we, we have here, like I mentioned at the beginning, we have a lot here that you might say to yourself, I've already heard that. And hopefully Christ is going to really strengthen this in your own soul. 
But the additional clarity and the additional light on approaching the book of Matthew and firstly looking at what Matthew meant within the book of Matthew about this commission, I think will give us light and clarity. And ultimately, it will strengthen you to take the purpose that came into the heart of God, that eternal purpose before the foundation of the world, that you will know that eternal purpose and it will so grip you that you in a local New Testament assembly will take this commission, the means by which we see the eternal purpose happen. What is the eternal purpose? For people to be saved and baptized in a local New Testament assembly and gathering together with that body to learn to observe all that Christ commanded. That's the commission. Will happen in our geographical location. And folks, we've had the privilege of being a part of churches that have commissioned messengers to go into all the world to see that happen. And what a joy that is to see that happen according to the measure that Christ has given to us, the ability to participate in that. But we have an obligation for us to know the purpose and the means to carry that out. The means are not hidden. We don't have to get in a committee meeting and say, now what is the way to reach this culture? The Lord has already given to us the means. And He's given to us the eternal purpose. And both the means and the purpose are given to His learner followers into all the nations. Let's pray.